great truth. And if you don't believe that this morning, it's time that you do. God's love never fails and it never, he never changes. And his love is always there. Um, this morning we're going to begin, uh, we're going to start, introduce a new song to you. It's kind of new, but kind of not. If you've um, been watching the videos beforehand, we have those up there. Um, we, this was one of the videos from a couple weeks past. Um, so I think it's a, it's a song you can catch on to, but um, it's just a great declaration of who we are and what we believe as Christ followers.
glory this morning, Lord, and we praise your name. sadness from wherever you've been come broken heart and let rescue begin come find your mercy oh sinner come kneel earth has no sorrow heaven can heal earth has no sorrow the heaven can heal so lay down your
can't think of a better way this morning to lead into communion than with those words. Come sit at the table. Come taste the grace. Now, there's a verse in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, that says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we'll share a meal together as friends. That verse for years has been used as an evangelistic verse to say, if you're lost, come home to God. In reality, it's written to believers. Believers who, for one reason or another, have shut God out of their life for a little bit. And Jesus is saying, I'm here, I'm knocking. And if you'll open that door today, I'll come in. And we can share a meal as friends, which was an incredibly intimate act in the, in the ancient Eastern world. And so Jesus invites you this morning to open that door let him have a seat and then sit across from him and have a conversation. And that's what we're going to do. So have a seat and communion is coming to you at this time. Lord Jesus, I thank you for knocking on the door. We need to hear that knocking. And I'm thankful that when we finally choose to open that door, you don't wait, you come in, you sit down. And we get to have communion with each other. Not just a spiritual meal, but a literal intimate relationship with Almighty God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for inviting us to the table. Even though we are dirty, broken, and unclean, thank you for welcoming us, welcoming us to share that meal with you as friends. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it is good to see you today. Um, my, my sidekick isn't here today. Uh, the high schoolers are out of town. They're in St. Louis, which explains the hole right here. So as you look at the hole today, just imagine a bunch of high schoolers that are having a good time at a church in St. Louis this morning. You walked in, you were handed a folder. There's a card on the inside. We'd like you to take that out right now if you would. 
and at least put your name on it. If it's your first time with us, what we'd like you to do is fill out as much information as you want to, and then as your way on your way out today, if you just hold on to your card and give it to me, we have a gift we'd like to give you. There's also a place on the backside for you to check off some things. For example, if you've been thinking about baptism on August 2nd, you can go ahead and put that. If you've been thinking about working with Southfield kids, you're interested in that, you can go ahead and check that as well. And there's the box on the back that you can use anytime for prayer requests and go ahead and uh, just share those things with us. So on Sunday mornings, one of the things that we like to do is follow up the message with the time of being able to answer questions. I'm not honestly sure, again, how that's going to work today without the sidekick here to be able to cover while I go ahead and look at the questions. So what may end up happening today is we'll be responding to you in writing, but nonetheless, we'd like to hear your questions because honestly, I think this is a topic that's going to bring a few to the surface. So if you have those, we'd love for you to share them. And, and then if you go to uh, DennisPap.com during the week, you'll go ahead and see answers and, and we can interact on that. Which leads us to today's question. Uh, normally on a Sunday, we like to get you talking a little bit, spending a couple of minutes having a conversation with somebody. It doesn't have to be someone brand new. It doesn't have to be someone you've never met. You can talk to your spouse. And you know what? That may be the first time you've talked all week. And that's a really good thing. So just go ahead and get a person two or three on, on this. And, and the main thing we want to make sure is that nobody's sitting off the edge by themselves. So invite someone into your circle. That would be great. And, and your question is interesting today. I want you to answer a question, and I want you to do it at a junior high level. I think it's really important to be able to communicate to junior hires. If you can communicate to a junior hire, you can communicate to anyone. You really can. And so you need to be able to think through, how do I say this in a way that a junior hire will catch it? So here's your question. I want you to go ahead and, and find a person and explain to them what integrity is. At a junior high level, if you were explaining integrity to a group of junior high students, how would you define it? Okay, I'll let that just brew for a second. You're at church, Southfield, Sunday morning. The question is there. The person is next to you. Ready, set, timer starts, talk. So we've been working our way through a series on forgotten virtues. We've talked about three of five. And today we're going to be moving on to integrity. And you just preach that sermon to each other, which is really great. You fully understand the topic now. Before we move on to integrity, I'd like to move backward just a little bit. I'd like to go back to something from last week and kind of unfold it just a little bit more. We were talking about um, loyalty and the fact that when we're truly loyal to someone, that means sometimes not that we just go along with what they're saying or thinking, but it might mean that we actually challenge them. We might actually challenge them in an area of character or whatever and say, you know what, that's not consistent with who you are. The action you're about to do, the thing you've been doing, it's not consistent with who you want to be as a Christ follower. And so it's actually loyal to a person sometimes to, to call those things out. And in that, we were talking about the interaction between Moses and God. 
Uh, the children of Israel come to the edge of the promised land. They decide they don't want to go in. And God just flatly says to Moses, you know what? I've had it with these people. I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth. I'm going to start all over again. And we made the point that Moses actually then steps up and says to God, you can't do that. And, he, and he's very loyal to God. He says, if you do this, this is going to be inconsistent with your character, it's going to be inconsistent with, with basically what, what you've been thinking, what you've been conveying to the world. And one of the questions that might arise from that is, did we have the first moment in human history that God was about to sin? And thank goodness that Moses was there to, to pull back God somehow and say, oh my goodness, God, you can't sin. The world will come to the end. We've already got Satan. We don't need two of them. That's not what was going on here at all. Not at all. In fact, God would have been very much in his rights to say, I'm wiping out this nation, but I'm keeping you. Remember, Moses is an Israelite too. The promise is given to Abraham, and the promise is given through Abraham's descendants. Moses is a descendant of Abraham. God very well could have started with Moses and brought about a whole new nation. The point that Moses makes is not, God, you're about to sin. Please don't do that. His point is, what you're about to do is going to be greatly misunderstood. Your character has been established among the nations of the world. The Egyptians quake in fear at your name. As your children have been working their way through the wilderness, nation after nation is scared of you. They know you're all-powerful. And if at this point you choose to wipe them out, it's going to cause some people to question who you are and what you're all about. So please don't get the idea somehow that we were teaching last week that God was on the verge of sin. And thank goodness for Moses, or we just have this incredible problem. In fact, what I really think was going on in this entire thing, there were a couple of tests that God was laying out. God laid out a test, first of all, to the Israelites. Remember, it was God's idea to send them in and to spy out the land. God knew what the land was like. God knew. He said, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. You're going to love this land. You really believe that God was placing before the Israelites the opportunity to say, you know what? There are challenges in this land, but I'm greater than challenges. Are you going to be loyal to me or not? And they said, no, we're not going to be loyal to you. And then actually God was laying out a, a test to Moses as well. Are you going to go ahead and bring these people into land that I promised them? Or are you going to just look out for yourself in this particular moment? So God lays out these opportunities. And honestly, what it does is leads us beautifully into the next topic. Because very often, we don't know if we're a true person of integrity until our integrity is tested. You can sit around all day long theorizing about your integrity. If this happened, I'd stand up. If the Nazis took over the land, I'd blah, blah, blah. We come up with all these great theories on what we would do if. But when the moment of testing comes, that's when we find out whether or not we are truly a person of integrity. Whether our words and our beliefs are consistent with our actions and our character. So as we dive into integrity today, I guess we have to start with the question, what is it? What's integrity? What's it all about? And you talked about it with each other and, and came up with some ideas. Maybe you came up with one-word definitions or, or multiple-word definitions. I suspect for a lot of you, when you were talking about integrity, the word honesty came up. Some people just quite simply believe integrity equals honesty. That's it. If you're an honest person, you're a person of integrity. If you're not honest, you have no integrity. I spent some time looking at just dozens of quotes on integrity this past week, trying to get an idea of 
what people think about it. I found a quote by C.S. Lewis, and it's always good to quote C.S. Lewis. The man knows his stuff. What he did is said something that's really quite popular in our own times when it comes to talking about integrity. He says, integrity is doing the right thing even when no one is watching. What's your integrity? Who am I when no one's looking? Is, is who I am when no one is looking consistent with who I am when everyone is looking? There's some integrity there. In fact, what that probably is is not the definition of integrity. It's the test of integrity. Am I consistent in both situations? Another man, Alan Cohen, he writes, You are in integrity when the life you are living on the outside matches the life you are living on the inside. So there's some consistency going on between who I am in here, what my beliefs are, what my convictions are, and how it's displayed out there. What you see is the same as what's going on inside of me. Uh, There's another man, Clement Stone, and he wrote, do the right thing because it's right. That's integrity. Integrity is I choose to do the right thing because it's the right thing. Thing to do. Now, the challenge here is going to be who defines right? Who, who's, the, who's the ultimate judge of right and wrong? But nonetheless, when we do the right thing, we're living in some degree of integrity. Senator from Wyoming a few years back, Alan Simpson, who has a way with words, said, If you have integrity, nothing else matters. If you don't have integrity, nothing else matters. What's he saying? Integrity is important. It's vital. It's vital because if you don't have integrity, people will not trust you. And if people do not trust you, people are not going to follow you. So all you have to do is click on the news and what? We get example after example after example of a lack of integrity. And it's so easy to look at examples like that and go, shame on you. But the fact is the integrity problem isn't just out there. It's in here. It's not just out in the world, but it's in the church. We become people that from time to time truly lack integrity. Uh, Longer definition. Integrity means following your moral and ethical convictions and doing the right thing in all circumstances, even if no one is watching you. Having integrity means you are true to yourself and would do nothing that demeans or dishonors you. So let's just kind of break this down. Some of the definitions from from the definition, here's what we've seen. Integrity is being honest. It's being true to yourself. It's being consistent inside and out. It's being consistent in your public life and your private life. And it's doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. That's kind of, that's a broad overview of all the things that we see about integrity. If you were to look for some antonyms, what's the opposite of integrity? What does that look like? Well, duplicity. I I can't be a person of integrity, integrity and be duplicitous at the same time. Duplicity means I say one thing, do another. I'm one way in public, I'm another way in private. So duplicity is an antonym. It's an opposite. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy basically says, I'm going to do what I want, but you need to do the right thing. So we'll point out what everybody else is doing wrong, but if we're doing it, it's okay because, you know, I'm me. And I, I know what I really mean and what I really think, but you're wrong. Really, when it comes down to it, the opposite of integrity is what? Disintegration. It's disintegration. Um, 
Now, you look at all these different definitions, and we could almost look at integrity this way without even looking at the Bible and say, so that's what integrity looks like. But I'm telling you that if if you look at just those definitions alone and those synonyms and those antonyms, I don't think you get an idea of what integrity is really all about. There is more to integrity than just being honest and being true to yourself. There's more to it. Integrity does not simply equal honesty. Honesty is part of it, but it's more than that. Integrity is not simply being true to yourself. You'll hear people say that. I have to be true to myself. Well, what if the self you're being true to is your false self? What what if the self you're being true to is not the person God wants you to be, but it's the person you've chosen to be? And so you have someone who's kind of obnoxious, and they say, I have to be true to myself, and they're just obnoxious all over everybody. Well, you know what? There's There's a sense in which they have integrity. They're not being duplicitous, right? They're a jerk inside, and they're being a jerk outside. They're a jerk in private, and they're a jerk in public. Do you see why we can't simply look at integrity as being true to yourself? It's more than being true to yourself. There's more going on here relationally just that I'm going to be me and the rest of the world just has to take me the way I am. If you were to really think through the word integrity, integrity is integration. It means to be truly integrated. It means there's some consistency in some things going on in my life. There's spiritual consistency, first of all. You see, it's not enough to be true to myself. I have to be true to God. I need to be true to his word. As a Christian, as a Christ follower, I am not a person of integrity if I'm being true to my false self and I'm denying my God and I'm denying his word. There's got to be integration with God. There's got to be integration with his law and with his character. So, I have integrity in this direction. Beyond that, there's relational integrity. I'm being true to the relationships in my life. I'm being true to my spouse. I'm being true to the people of my church. We sang this beautiful creedal song this morning. This is what we believe. Not this is what Dennis believes, and it's a pretty song, so I'll sing along. This is what we believe as a group of people. And that's integrity relationally when we join together and we say, this is where we are in our heart. This is who we are together. So we have spiritual integration with God. We have relational integration with the people around us. We're being, we're being true to the people around us. And then there's also moral integration. That, that, I'm, that I'm being true to who God calls me to be. I'll give you ABCs, Okay. This is integration of attitude and action, of belief and behavior, of conviction and character. There are a lot of Christians that are fantastic at quoting the Bible all over the place, but they're not living the Bible any place. You've got to be both. We've got to be moving toward an integration morally that says, this is my attitude, and by the way, this is the action that's consistent with that. This is my belief, and this is the behavior that's consistent with that. This is my conviction, and this is the character that's consistent with that. They go together. That's what integration looks like. So, again, looking at integration or integrity, not just from a general world standpoint, but from a Christian viewpoint, well, who I am inside 
is who I am on the outside. But who I am inside is a person that is growing more and more in in integration with God, with the people around me, and with beliefs and convictions. Who I am in private is who I am in public. This is a great test. I wonder right now if the room were empty. If you were, if you were able today to go somewhere on vacation and it's only you and you know nobody else would be there, how would you act? Person of integrity says exactly what I do when the room is full, when everybody else is around. Person lacking integrity says, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? Because I don't have to be integrated with my real life here. Who am I when no one is looking? Oh, but remember, there's always someone looking, right? God's always looking. He's always got his eye on us. Who am I when no one is looking? Is who I am when all eyes are on me. It's the same. And it's more than honesty. It's much more than honesty. It's being true. Now, that's honest, but it's being true. It's being true to God. It's being true to my relationships. It's being true to the growing Christ-like character within me. Not true to my false self, but to the self that God has created me to be in Christ. And I understand when true Christian integrity is involved that my reputation is about more than just me. That when I do something, it impacts my family. When I do something, it impacts people I know. When I do something, it impacts my church. And so integrity is far broader than just, this is who I am, and I'm going to do what I want to do, no matter what you might think or feel. There's a beautiful psalm. There are a lot of beautiful psalms. This particular one is Psalm 15. And it's a psalm about integrity. David begins by saying, who may worship in your sanctuary, Lord, who may enter your presence on your holy hill? Lays out the question, all right? And I want you to read along with me out loud the passage on the left side, starting with the word those. Let's go. Those who lead blameless lives and do what is right, speaking the truth from sincere hearts. Those who refuse to gossip or harm their neighbors or speak evil of their friends. Those who despise flagrant sinners and honor the faithful followers of the Lord and keep their promises even when it hurts. Those who lend money without charging interest and who cannot be bribed to lie about the innocent. Such people will stand firm forever. You have the New Living Translation on this side and the NIV on the other side. And I have both of them up there. And they'll be up there so you can kind of peek at them and compare and just kind of get a different idea of the meanings. But basically, here's what David's saying. The person who gets the privilege of standing on God's holy hill is the person of integrity. And these are actions of an integrated person. A person integrated with God, with self, with relationships around them. This is part of what it looks like. And I love the way the NIV ends because it says, Whoever does these things will never be shaken. You're looking for a reason to be a person of integrity? It's great to be a person who is not shaken. It's great to be a person who walks in the room and doesn't have to look at somebody and go, oh no, they saw me X the other night. Are they going to say something? What's going to happen? Are they, what's going to, we're always wondering, who did I tell this lie to? What did I say here? Who was I over there? That's a lot of shaking going on. 
A person of integrity knows who they are all the time. They don't have to pretend in front of certain people. They will never be shaken. So what I'd like to do is look at an example from the Bible. And it's an example found in Genesis, starting in Genesis chapter 37. Pretty incredible uh, example. You, you've seen it before. We've been here before. This isn't new territory to many of you at all. It, it starts with the story of Joseph in Genesis chapter 37. And you remember in his story that Joseph, his brothers are so jealous of him that they sell him off into slavery. Have you ever wondered if you have siblings, if they were ever tempted to do that? Sell you to Kentucky or something? I don't know. But anyway, boom, good. Don't have to worry about them anymore. Or if you'd be the one that was sold. I don't know. Kind of interesting. So anyway, he goes through this trauma. He gets sold off to the land of Egypt. And, and what happens in this passage is intriguing because we're introduced to Joseph in chapter 37. And the story is like, wow, that was, that's intense. And you want to know what happens next. You want to know, okay, he's been sold. Where is he going? What's happening? What's going on? And chapter 38 shows up, and chapter 38 has nothing to do with chapter 37. You look at it and you go, wait a second, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the writer is talking about this Judah guy. Why is he talking about Judah? Well, Judah is one of Joseph's older brothers, but I really think what God through his spirit is doing at this point is saying, I'm going to tell you a story that you are going to love and you're going to tell forever, and they're even going to have a musical about it. You're going to love this story. But I don't want you to miss the point. The story isn't about Joseph. The story is about Judah. You know why the story is about Judah? Who's the lion of Judah? Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to come through Judah. And even here, very, very early in the Bible, God's saying, don't get your eyes off Jesus. You're going to love this story about Joseph, but don't get your eyes off Jesus. Ultimately, it'll be Judah through whom Jesus will come. Now, when you read chapter 38, you go, really? Because Judah, let's just say, um, this is the chapter in which we'll look at what integrity is not. Judah has some sons, and his sons, for oldest son, his name, Ur, nice easy name, Ur, okay? So, um, he gets married to a woman named Tamar. And the Bible flatly tells us that he is in verse 38, verse 7, and says, But Ur, Judah's first son, was so wicked in the Lord's sight, so God put him to death. He's such a wicked guy that just said, I'm done with him. And so what happens in those times, a, a man dies, the woman is left there. We want to make sure that the family name continues. So if there is a brother that is not yet married, he marries the sister-in-law so that the family name will continue. And that's what happens. The second brother goes ahead and marries, um, marries Ur's, husband, Ur's wife. His name is Onan. And Onan basically decides, I'll marry her, but we're not going to have babies. And he has a creative way of doing that. And so... Um, Basically, what the Bible tells us is what he did was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death also. Okay, so now Tamar has had two, son, two husbands from the same man, from Judah, from his sons. And now we're up to number three. Now, I don't know if you're number three. You're kind of going, huh, really? Well, he's not quite old enough yet to get married. And so Judah says, go home to your mom and dad. When he's old enough you'll get married. And the Bible tells us flatly, Judah had no intention of going through with this because he wants some sons left by the time all, all things are done. So the story progresses 
And Tamar goes off to be with her parents. She figures out the scheme. And she hears from someone that Judah is about to go to a foreign land, go to a different place. And so she goes there ahead of him. And she dresses like a prostitute. And she disguises herself. And she sees him on the street. And she says, hey, come sleep with me. And he says, oh, I, you know, I don't know, cash. Uh, I can send you a goat. Okay, that'll do. Well, how do I know that you're going to send me a goat? Well, I'll tell you what. I'll leave you my driver's license and my Discover. Here, you take these, you hold on to these, and I promise a goat will be coming eventually. All right, let's do this thing. So they go ahead, do what prostitutes and their friends do. And a while later, Tamar becomes pregnant. And it's interesting because Judah finds out about it. He, he finds out about it, and, and, and his response is interesting. He says, bring her out and have her burned to death. Nice guy. You know, he, he has no idea yet who Tamar is in this story. Because, see, the next part, Tamar is really creative. She says to Judah, have you seen your license and your Discover card lately? Because they're right here. And Judah has this moment, and he goes, oh, my word. You see, what happened to Judah? Whoever does these things will never be shaken. Judah was doing some shaking right about now. He was, doing, he was caught. He was busted. And, and it's interesting because the Bible tells us Judah recognized his Discover card and license immediately and said, she's more righteous than I am because I didn't arrange for her to marry my son, Selah, and Judah never slept with Tamar again. Now, what's interesting is he doesn't say, she's more righteous than I am. I slept with her, and it's my baby. He instead focuses on the plot. Nonetheless, there's all kinds of disintegration going on in the life of Judah. And what's amazing, come sit at the table, come taste the grace. It is Judah and Tamar that God uses, ultimately, for a baby named Jesus to be born. Not the incredible man of integrity, Joseph. Not Joseph who gets it right every stinking time. It's Judah who's a complete moral mess that God says, yep, he's my servant. My son is going to come through that. Now, um, I'll just let you chew on that this week. Because that's going to teach you a few things about the grace of God. Just sit with that for a little bit, okay? Meanwhile, back at the ranch, or meanwhile, back in Egypt, you know, we do have Joseph, and he has been sold off. And he's there in that land, and, and he's trying to figure out what his role is now. And, and we read that, you know, he gets there, and, and God, God's presence is always so on Joseph that everywhere he goes, everything goes right. The guy's got just a golden touch, and it's the golden touch of God. Everything he does just works out perfectly every time. And his new master, the man who bought him, yeah, he bought him, Potiphar, recognizes this. And he says, wow, everything is going so well with you. I'm going to go ahead and put you in charge of absolutely everything in my household. You, you are in charge of all things. Absolutely. You, I mean, I, the only, have it all. It's all yours. It's all under your control. Pretty amazing. Think about this for a moment. He's been sold off into a slavery. God's hand is on him. Everything is going his way. It's going really, really well. And yet God had this promise in a dream. You're going to rule over your brothers. 
I'm sure that Joseph is still, even though things are going well in Potiphar's house, he's still going through some confusion. He's still trying to figure out, how does this all work together in the plan of God? Well, we keep reading in the passage, it says Joseph was well-built and handsome. Wouldn't you love the Bible to say that about you? And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. Now, you've got to remember, Joseph is 17, 18 years old. He's a young guy, and his master's wife has said, come to bed with me. Come sleep with me. Let's have some fun together. And um, the passage goes on. Joseph says these words. He refused. He said, with me in charge, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. It's all under my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. So we have the example of Judah who basically does everything possible wrong with a woman. And we have the example of Joseph who does everything possible right with a woman. And what I'd like to do in the remainder of our time is just break down this passage and ask the question, when our integrity breaks down, what happens? What happens that's the opposite of what Joseph did? We see Joseph's right decisions. What are the decisions we make that cause the moral meltdown? What, what happens along the way? What, what's the story here? Well, the first thing I think happens a lot of times when, when we break down morally, when disintegration happens, is there's a sense of entitlement. Do you not believe that Joseph could have said, this is all against the plan. God's forgotten me here in Egypt. At least I deserve to have a little fun. I deserve this. Your boss is treating you lousy. You haven't had a raise for four years. Abuses you, uses you, takes you for granted. And what do you think? I deserve to cheat a little bit. I deserve to take this home even though it doesn't belong to me. I deserve to go ahead and come in late and leave early. I deserve to do this. We start, we get into this entitlement mentality, right? My spouse has been less than what I want. Hasn't been there for me the way I think he or she should be. And so before you know it, we're saying, I'm entitled to something outside of this relationship. Joseph didn't have the entitlement mentality. He didn't say, I deserve this. Not at all. But that's what we do. We start feeling a little bit entitled. Then what else happens? We feel the heat and we start to compromise. This isn't just anybody in Potiphar's house. This is Potiphar's wife. You know full well, sometimes talking to the wife is like talking to the boss himself. And she's putting this pressure on him. And it would be very easy for him to say, what choice do I have? If I don't do this, I could lose my job. I could lose my life. And so what does he do in this situation? What do we do in this situation? We start to think of ways to compromise, ways to cut around the edges and say, well, you know what? I better just go along. If I don't just go along, bad things might happen. And so we start to disintegrate in our integrity because we think compromise is necessary in order to survive. Keep going. We forget the impact on others. 
Joseph did not forget the impact this was going to have on the people around him. Joseph didn't forget. Potiphar has put me in charge of everything. Potiphar cares about me, and I care about Potiphar. And he looked at the relationships around him and said, why would I do this and hurt this man? Why would I do this and hurt other people? Very often, our disintegrated actions happen in isolation. We decide to do something, and we don't think about how it's going to affect our spouse, our family, our friends, our church, anyone else. We say, this is me right now, and just me. And we forget. We wipe out the fact that we live in community. We live in relationships. Then we forget our reputation. What does Joseph say? No one is greater in this house than I am. He remembers his role. He remembers his place. He says, how can I act in a way that's inconsistent with who I am? How can we act in a way that's inconsistent with the title follower of Jesus Christ? How can we do that? But we melt down sometimes and we forget the importance of our reputation. Further, we forget God. How could I do such a thing and sin against God? He doesn't make it a little oops moment, a little momentary indiscretion, a youthful interaction that shouldn't have happened when he's older. He says, how can I sin against God? He keeps God on the front burner in his decisions when it comes to integrity. He can't forget about God. You keep going in the story, sometimes we just start to feel worn down. What does it say? Potiphar's wife came again and again and again and again. This was not a one-time proposition. It happened over and over and over. And after a while, we just go, fine. I'm sick of resisting. I'm sick of fighting. I give in. But if we're going to be in people of integrity, we have to say no the first time and the thousandth time. We have to stand strong. The last thing we do when integrity becomes an area of disintegration is we forget to be ruthless. We forget to be ruthless. Look at the way it ends. It says he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. You know what far too many of us do as believers? We play right up to the line. We play as close. We even even put part of the shoe over the line. Look, hey, woo, I'm okay. Nothing's happened yet. Joseph said, I see the line, and I'm going over here as far as I possibly can. But we think morally that we can play with it because we're strong. We're stronger than that. We can handle it. No, we can't. No, we can't. And so what happens in our life is not integrity, but disintegration. We fall apart. And I ask you the simple question. Do you want to live a life that's not shaken? Do you long for a life that's not shaken? Do you long for a life that every time you turn around, you're not wondering, what did I say to him? How did I act in front of her? What was my decision over there? And you're having to think about it all the time, and it's shaking the foundation of your life. We really have a choice today. Judah, Joseph. Am I going to live like Judah, go off to that foreign land and do whatever I want, Or in that same foreign land concept, I'm going to say, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? God wants us to be people of integrity. People that are fully integrated with him, with the people around us, and with ourselves. Living out biblical values. Not just talking about them. Not just having beliefs, but having behaviors that are consistent with those beliefs. Let's talk to our Father in heaven right now.
God, we are grateful to you. That you give us these examples from your word of people who get it right and people who totally mess up. The thing that blows us away in this story is that you still use the guy who messes up. You don't just throw him away. And it's not that Joseph's perfect, and that's why you choose to use him either. Come sit at the table. Come taste the grace. Your grace is there when we don't get it right. Your grace is there when we get it right every time. But God, you call us. You call us to integrity. You call us to be people who live out you and your word in such a way in front of other people that it is winsome and attractive and they are called to you. And we pray that we would be those kinds of people. In Jesus' name, amen. So you get a lot of my voice today. Brian will be back next week, I promise, with incredibly entertaining announcements. But until then, it's just boring me. So our servers are coming right now and are getting ready right now to collect the offering. No, they are ready. Here they come. Go ahead and put your card in there and uh, go ahead and give. That's great. want to remind you again that our summer service times will be starting on June 7th. So just want to keep reiterating this. Some of you are saying, I know, I heard. Yeah, I know. And we're going to keep saying it because come June 7th, you're going to wake up and show up at the wrong time. So we want to make sure. June 7th, 9, 1030, don't forget it. Keep praying for our kids as they're enjoying their time in St. Louis. Uh, got a great group that went down there. We have been having the Instagram and uh, Facebook pictures coming back. So they've done the arch. They've done all kinds of fun St. Louis stuff. And uh, they'll be back with us again next week. It'll be great. So I have this picture for you. I, I was kind of blown away as I was looking at this, realizing we're like a couple of ways for, a couple weeks away from this picture being a year old already. We gathered out here on Memorial Day weekend and got our rocks and wrote our prayers on them and put them in that pile right out there in the parking lot. It's just a, an incredible reminder to us again of, of what God has done here in the last year. Uh, being in a new house, it gives us the chance to do some things that we weren't able to do when we were renters. We're able to change up some of the systems that we've been doing and the ways that we've been doing things. So, for example, a few, well, it's been a couple months ago now, you recognize that we stopped putting pens on your folder. There are baskets as you walk in and you can go ahead and get a pen. And another thing that we're going to be changing come the beginning of June is when you come in, in your folder, an offering envelope won't be sitting in there. Okay, so we're going to do two things. For those of you that like the privacy of an envelope, they'll be sitting back on the tables, and you can go ahead and use that. But one of the things we've been able to do that's great is, uh, believe it or not, these were kept as a, a record of your giving so that if the IRS were ever asked, hey, did they give? We could pull out years' worth of envelopes and say, here's what they gave. And fortunately, with modern things like computers and the interweb and all that stuff, we're able now instead to go ahead and scan checks. So by doing that, we don't have to have the record on an envelope anymore, which is great. Having said that, if you're in the habit of giving cash and you want a record of that, you'll still need to fill out the envelope. So we're going to give you a month to kind of get your mind around this. June 7th, all the world is changing. They're changing the times. They're changing the envelope. What's going on? Where do we go to church anymore? What is this crazy place? All right, so anyway, just giving you a little bit of lead-up time to that. But like I said, they'll be sitting back on the table, and if you still want to use that, that's great. The other thing that's really cool about the envelope is it is addressed. So if you're ever not here, you're able to go ahead and mail that in instead. So 
That's pretty much everything for this Sunday. Why don't you stand? I don't want you to forget that uh, we've got a business meeting tomorrow night. Yeah, you can stand, really. Business meeting tomorrow night where we're talking about uh, our statement of faith. So that is on the table. And like I said last week to this gang, give me enough time to get to the door so that I can have the books there for people who are new. And so in the meantime, why don't you just go ahead and say hi to someone, all right? You have a good day. Good to have you here today. I believe-